I know I remind us every week, but the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a group of people that he um, was, he was in love with them. He had been involved in their lives um, very deeply, very wonderfully. He had gone to Corinth and planted the church there. It was because of his blood, sweat, and tears. Um, the work that he did, ultimately it was the Holy Spirit, we know that. But Paul laid down his life for these people. He sacrificed for them to plant the church, to pastor the church there. And once he left, the church began to run into a lot of problems. The church became super toxic. And 1 Corinthians, we know when he wrote that letter to them, he addressed all these issues that needed to be corrected within the church. And I'm so glad we have that epistle because sometimes there's issues in the church. Correct? Not here. I hear about other churches. Not here. No, sometimes we do. Sometimes we run into issues between one another, interpersonal relationships and stuff, where we need the instruction and we have God's Word to help us and the Holy Spirit also to empower us to do what God has called us to do. So Paul left. The church became toxic. He writes that first epistle. He comes back on a second visit um, to clean up some more things. There were some problems in the church. And then we're going to see in just a moment, he's going to come back for a third visit also to the church. And we know as we've read through this letter together, we know that there's some serious issues that are going on within the church. And primarily, there was a group of, uh, of leaders, a minority, a small group of, of people that were influencing or infecting the church. And what they were doing was they were taking the church away from, God's precious people away from, a simple love relationship with Jesus Christ. And I used the example last week as parents. Can you imagine someone trying to seduce your child to take them away from you? How would you feel? Would you be happy? Would you guys be happy about that? Husbands, someone seducing your wife? That's fighting words, isn't it? Someone pulling in to do that? So think about it now on a, on a spiritual level with Jesus our groom, and we're the bride of Christ. Paul is really representing the heart of God. Someone that gets in between you and Jesus, that's a problem. And so these people are trying to take, take uh, the church away from that simple walk with the Lord. And as Paul's been defending himself, Paul's been forced to defend himself to the church because these creeps, these guys that are there, these false leaders have been talking trash about the Apostle Paul, and the church was so carnal and worldly, they bought into it. They bought into the lies and the nonsense, and so Paul is now having to defend himself, in which he should never have had to do, defend himself to them. They knew his record, they knew his life, and some of the things that they said about the Apostle Paul were, were really um, pathetic, weren't they? You guys remember what they said? He's short, he's squeaky, he's not a good orator... Right, All of these superficial things, and yet they had experienced the power of God through his life and other ministers. Paul came in, in brokenness with tears and trembling and shared the word of God and ministered to them the truth and love, and God did an awesome work by his spirit. And, but since that time, since Paul had left, they have been deceived and been taken away from that simplicity that's found in Christ Jesus. And so now as we get to the tail end of this letter, Paul has some upfront. I'm just going to let you know there's some heavy stuff he says. But then he finishes the letter off with um, really some, some gracious um, exhortations and encouragement 
for us. But just kind of a little disclaimer this morning, it's heavy up front. And it's a necessary heavy too, by the way, as we read through this chapter together. Remember when Jesus gave the report cards to the churches in Revelation? You guys remember that? Chapter 2 and chapter 3 Jesus would give, Jesus shared the truth. He gave the prognosis and the diagnosis right up front, but he also shared the cure too, didn't he? He doesn't just leave, he doesn't just leave us in that place of, man, I need to make these corrections, but he says, here's the corrections you need to make. Here's the way to get back on track in order that you would experience um, the life that I promised that you would have, the abundant life and walking in love and peace and joy and, and your life walking in the calling I have for you. And so chapter 13, let's check it out, gang. God's word says, Paul writes, this will be the third time I am coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses Every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Let me draw your attention to verse 1. Paul reminds them, listen, my third visit, I'm coming, I'm coming to see you. And notice he quotes from the Old Testament, I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, um, where a testimony um, needed to be validated by two or three witnesses. Um, And specifically, it was in ancient Israel, this was instruction for the judges. And so under the Old Testament law, two or three witnesses needed to establish a testimony. And so Paul's saying, visit number one, that's the first witness. Visit number two, that's the second witness. Visit number three, that will be the third witness to you. And so it's time, Paul's saying, to come to a conclusion concerning your case. And what's interesting to me is they've treated Paul pretty horribly. And Paul, in fact, he said, remember last week, the more I love you, the less you love me. (laughs) I mean, think about that. If people were talking trash about you, they've ditched you, they've They've, 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 they've made your name mud. How would you respond to them? Would you come back a first time, a second time, a third time? Would you come back in love and help, desiring to see them blessed? This is so like, amazing to me, Paul's heart. He has the heart of God because God doesn't give up on us, does he? Does God give up on us? Does he fire you? He do- aren't you glad he doesn't? Paul's like continuing to extend love. Listen, when you care about people, you stick around even when it hurts. And that's what we see with the Apostle Paul here. And Paul says in verse 2, listen, I've told you before, I'm telling you in advance, um, those people that are persisting in unrepentant sin, he had mentioned uh, that group of people last week, chapter 12, verse 21, right? 
Yeah, he said in verse 21, that's where he speaks about um, these people. I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. So Paul's addressing this group in the church that is involved with sexual sin. They're not repenting, involved in, in, in dirty behavior. And he says to the rest, he says, if I make it back, look at the end of verse 2. If I make it back, um, I'm not going to spare. I'm not going to refrain from addressing this. I'm not going to hold back. I will say what I need to say. And so Paul confronts them strongly. If you don't respond to the instruction, I will need to deal with it. I won't stand for it when I show up. And so Paul is strong up front. We're going to see here and then gracious at the end. And then look at verse three. He says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. You're looking for some proof that Jesus is in me, speaking through me. And remember, Paul has had accusations made about him, specifically the way he communicated, correct? Right? His speech is contemptible. His bodily presence is weak, right? Again, he wasn't a slick preacher. He didn't have all the $150 words. He was, lack he was, he was lacking in the way that he spoke. He wasn't polished. He was super unrefined in the way he communicated. That's what they were saying about Paul. Not only that, he's short, lumpy, and whatever, whatever else they could criticize him about. And they're like, is, is Jesus even in him? I mean, look at the way he talks. Man. And those were accusations that Paul made. And think about how Paul handled these issues with them. He handled these things um, so gently with them so kind, and they perceived that as weakness, but it was really strength. It was really strength, you guys. Um, in fact, we learned uh, a couple of weeks ago in chapter uh, 12, when Paul was praying about that thorn in the flesh, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. And Paul said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. I will, I will gladly rejoice in those infirmities, in my weaknesses, when I'm persecuted, in gnarly circumstances. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I experience the strength of the Lord. And that's what he's communicating to the church here. What you're perceiving as meekness is not weakness at all. It's not weakness. In fact, um, I like what Paul does here. He defends himself, but he's careful not to take things personally. He's not an angry man lashing out. Why is, that in, why is that so important just to take note of as an observation? Because listen, um, serving the Lord, you will get offended. Did you guys know that? Serving the Lord, you will get, at some point, you will get offended. People will attack you personally. Can I encourage you not to take it personally? It's hard not to. And thin-skinned people in ministry will not last very long. I always encourage those serving, those in leadership, you need to have a rhino hide and a tender heart. Because you're going to get, people are going to say things and do things to you. And what do you need to do? You need to give it to the Lord. You need to let the Lord be your refuge. To let the Lord be your defense, your strong tower. You go to the Lord with it. You take it to the Lord, you give it to him, and you pray through it. If there's, Lord, if there's any truth in this, whatever they're saying, Lord, show me, and I will repent, or I will make an adjustment. I'll do whatever, Lord. I just want to please you and bless you. And so Paul follows the Lord's example. In fact, he speaks about the Lord at the end of verse 3. 
He says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who, which refers to Jesus, is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is not lacking in strength toward us. Isn't Jesus powerful in our lives? Is Jesus powerful in your life? Aren't you grateful for that? The work that he does, helping us, changing us, fixing us. It's by his strength. It's by his power. And in fact, Paul points to the cross in verse 4. Jesus was crucified in weakness. Jesus suffered a shameful, humiliating, lowly death as he hung there. Remember what happened? They were hurling insults and accusations, mocking him. But then Paul says, remember, he lives by the power of God. He suffered, died, and was buried, and rose again on the third day. And he lives by the power of God. It's glorious. The world perceives the cross as weakness. Right? The people looked upon Jesus and said, what kind of savior are you? He couldn't even save himself. He saved others. Isn't it interesting what they recognized? He did save others. But he couldn't save himself. Listen, in his sacrifice for you and for me, he chose not to save himself. Why? So he could save us. So he could save the world. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, the joy of presenting you and me faultless before the Father, of presenting you and me one day totally perfect in God's sight because of his righteousness given to us. And Paul says, listen, we've taken up our cross. We are also weak in him. We recognize we are nothing apart from Jesus. We are weak. We are lacking sufficiency. Do you guys recognize that too? This is an important lesson to learn. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's an acknowledgement of our dependence upon the Lord. That I don't have what it takes. I don't have the sufficiency. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. Lord, I need you. If I'm going to produce, if anything's going to be produced in my life of eternal, lasting value, it must be connected with you. As I abide in you, Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing of any eternal value. I must be looking to him, to his strength, to his resources. And Paul says that we're weak in him, but we shall live with him. We abide in Jesus. And notice the end of that verse. And the power of God, what? Touches your lives. God's power touches you. And that's what happens when we walk in brokenness and humility. When we take up our cross, we say no to ourself, death to ourself, where we can experience his resurrection life. What does it do? It touches other people. Are you with me on this? Some of you are. John chapter 12, you're taking notes. Jesus spoke about a seed. If it hits the ground and doesn't die, it doesn't produce anything. But that seed, if it hits the ground and, and ends up under the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. Listen, if we want to see fruit in our, in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, and in our ministries, we must die. We must die to our self-centeredness, our selfishness, and say, Lord, work through my life. Here's my life, Lord. And Paul said that. That's why there was fruit in Corinth, because he was willing to take the low place of a servant, willing to be lowly, willing to be mocked, 
willing to make himself of no reputation. Why? Because he loved them, and he knew that's how they would experience the power of God in their lives. It wasn't a bunch of super apostles, super duper apostles beating people down. That's not how you bear fruit that brings God glory. It's through brokenness and the power of God working through our lives, laying down our lives. And really, I love how Paul says this because in our flesh, how do we typically respond to people that are not nice to us? Do you give them nice big... Our flesh wants to respond in anger. But the Lord calls us to what? To respond with grace and truth and love. And then what happens when we do that? When we turn the other cheek, when we go the extra mile, what happens when we decide to do that? We experience his strength. And what happens? It touches people. When Jesus hung on the cross, what happened? I mean, people were touched through his suffering. When we suffer, when we take the low road, people get touched by our suffering when we suffer in a godly way following Jesus' example. The thief on the cross, right? Remember the, thief, the two thieves on the cross? They were hurling insults at Jesus. And then in, in, at the end of the road, what happened? One of the thieves said, what? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had a change of heart. Lord, Man, there's something different about this guy. He is who he says he is. He's a king. I want to be part of his kingdom. There he is on a cross hanging. You're part of a kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said to Pilate. If my kingdom was of this world, my guys would fight. But it's not now of this world. Oh, it will be when he sets up his kingdom when he comes. But the thief on the cross had a change of heart. How about the centurion? Remember what he said? A battle-hardened dude. Remember what he said? Truly, this man was the Son of God. He recognized, because why? He watched Jesus process suffering, the way he went through it. And listen, as we walk through suffering, as we humble ourselves and walk in meekness and loneliness and brokenness, God's power works through our lives. Paul understood that. And he's trying to communicate to the church, you perceive that as weakness, but it's not. That's how you experience God's power in your life. And so he goes on, look at verse 5 and 6. And seven and eight, and all the way down. (laughs) Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. I'm actually going to stop right there for a second. This is heavy verses, you guys. These are verses this morning we need to take seriously as we read this. Paul says what? He says, number one, examine yourselves. It means to inspect, to test yourselves. Why? To see if you are really a Christian. He's saying, don't just assume that you're in the faith but to examine yourselves, test yourselves, test to see if you're genuine. Are you the real deal? Prove it. Demonstrate it, he says to the Corinthians. Are you sure that Jesus is is living in you? Or are you a phony? Or are you a counterfeit? That word disqualified, it was used for metals that were tested to see if they were the real deal, to see if they were genuine or fake. 
And so Paul calls the church, he calls them, he calls us this morning to make a spiritual assessment where we are with God based upon the evidence in our lives. Someone once said if someone was going to convict you of being a Christian, would they have enough evidence? Is that how it goes? In the court of law. You got taken into court for being a Christian. Would there be enough evidence given that you are a Christian? Not based upon intent. Not based upon where you think you might be. But is there evidence? And and look at verse 6. Paul's like, I'm sure sure you're going to come to the conclusion that we're not phony. How could Paul say that? Because once they take a look at their own lives, as they examine their lives, as they test their lives, as Paul is asking them to, they're going to realize that they've fallen short. And they're going to recognize that they have wrongly listened. They've wrongly judged Paul. The Corinthians were all into examining Paul, scrutinizing Paul, correct? We just talked about it. He's short, squeaky, can't can't talk. They were all into scrutinizing, examining the Apostle Paul. And Paul's like, listen, stop looking at me. Stop testing me. And start examining yourselves. They were great analysts of Paul's life, but wouldn't look at their own lives. And we, we, does that ring a bell for anybody here this morning? We spend a lot of time doing that, don't we? Examining everyone else's lives. Paul said earlier, stop comparing yourselves with one another. It's foolish. And I've learned, I've learned something. I've learned the person who is always examining other people is always blind to the reality of what is going on spiritually in their own life. What's happening is, typically that person's hiding something. They're trying to conceal something, and they justify it by being focused on other people's failures and not their own. The Corinthians spent a lot of time examining Paul. And Paul says, why don't you stop examining me, my life, And start spending time examining yours. He says, make sure you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, do you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? What do you have going on with him right now? Is it a living, growing relationship? Is Jesus in you? Is there evidence? Do you have a genuine faith? Can I encourage you to do something? A little exercise? Take out a piece of paper. Not now. Take out a piece of paper when you get home. And write down the evidence in your life today that proves you have a living relationship with the Lord. And then maybe let your spouse check it out. (laughs) Or your kids. Because really the people closest to us are the most honest and they know for sure, right? what's going on in your life. I've shared this so many times. With my kids, I've told them, if I'm not the same dude as I am in the pulpit, as I am at home, you need to call me out on it. Because our kids have a baloney meter, don't they? (laughs) They know. Dad, how come come the, the jerks only come out when you're driving? Some of you will get that later. It's okay when you're driving home. If we're not the same, if I'm not the same person I am 
at church as I am at home, I will cause them to stumble in their relationship with God. David said, search me, O God. And know my heart. Test me. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. That's what Paul's saying here, to come before the Lord. Lord, examine me, test me. The last thing that you want to have is a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. The last thing you want to have is religion. Religion is man's attempt to relink himself to God. Christianity is the total opposite. It's God reaching down to us to rescue us and to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine going your whole lifetime and then standing before Jesus? I think it's the most frightening words or some of the most frightening words in the entire Bible. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what Jesus says? Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do marvelous works in your name? Did we not do this and that in your name? And Jesus said what? Verily, verily, I say unto you, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. That's heavy. Jesus says, you were naming my name. You were going to church. You were even doing stuff in my name. And then he says, I never knew you. There was no relationship. And you demonstrated, you demonstrated there was no relationship by the way you lived your life. Because of the practice of your life. You continued in habitual, unrepentant sin. And we're going to talk about this in John chapter 8 tonight. Remember the woman caught in adultery? You guys remember that? Isn't that a beautiful story? They try to trap Jesus. The religious leaders catch this woman, bring her there. Moses says in the law, she must be stoned, but what do you say? You guys remember what he does. He ignores them, doodles in the ground. And they keep, when you're ignored, how do you respond? Just like them, they got louder and louder. Come on, tell us. And Jesus gets up and what does he say? You without sin throw the first stone. And what happened? When they heard that, not when they read the writing on the ground, when they heard that, they were convicted in their consciences and they went away one by one from the oldest to the least of them. And then, and then there it was, just Jesus and her alone. And that's where we all have to come to that place, don't we? Where Jesus says, it's just him and you and that's it. And you're in a place of brokenness. The law says you need to be stoned. The law says you're guilty. Death, death penalty for you and me. And what, is, what does Jesus say? Has no one condemned you? Where, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Guess remember this story? It's pretty beautiful. And she says, no one, Lord. There's a transaction, just like the thief on the cross, transaction in the heart. No one, Lord, neither do I condemn you. And remember, remember the last things, this is kind of something that's been like discontinued in the church today. Go and sin no more. Hey, no more. That lifestyle, no moss. You need to repent. 180. 
I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You're going to go my way now. We're no longer involved, engaged in that kind of behavior, practicing unrepentant, habitual sin. Listen, going to church doesn't save you. Baptism does not save you. A church membership does not save you. Kicking an addiction does not save you. Being part of a Christian family does not save you. There is only one person that can save you, and that's Jesus Christ. Are you abiding in him? Are you trusting in him? Listen, don't get me wrong. Some of those things are a step towards, towards a living, vital relationship. Those are good things. But if you stop right there, you're in danger. You need to put all of your trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, check this out, in the last days, there's going to be a great falling away from the faith. Abandoning faith in Jesus Christ. And I have seen it. Every day is an opportunity to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. What's the fruit he's talking about? For the Spirit, Galatians 5. What is it? Love. Yeah, so, so again, just examine yourself. Am I growing in love? Is that fruit growing in my life? Am I growing in my love for the Lord? Am I growing in my love for others? What's the second fruit? Joy. Is there joy in my life? Peace. Do I have peace? Long-suffering? Am I, am I growing in my... I'm not saying, this is not perfection, by the way. Am I growing in these things? Am I growing in my long-suffering, my patience, kindness? Am I becoming more kind? Gentleness? Faithfulness? Faithfulness is required in a steward. That's required of us. Goodness? Am I, doing, am I growing and doing the right thing? Self-control? Am I becoming more self-disciplined or is my life out of control? Is my tongue out of control? Am I growing in these things? You know, um, not perfect, but growing. It's interesting. I get to go, well, not now because of COVID, but for many years we've gone to assisted living on Wednesdays to, to do services for the assisted living. And uh, just an observation um, of older people that some get more sweeter, more understanding, and more wise, and some get meaner and ornerier, more ornery. Either what, bitter and angry. I mean, it's like night and day. Are we growing in these things, gang? Nothing is more important than having this issue right in your life. You can have everything else right and this issue not, and you're totally wrong. Well, how can, is there any test in the Bible besides the fruit of the Spirit? If you're taking notes this morning, 1 John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list 10 signs of, I would say, life. How about that? Ten signs of life. You're taking notes. First John. I wrote it out this morning. Why first John? John, a whole, listen, John's writing to a whole bunch of people that were saying they know God, but they didn't. And John tells us what a life looks like that knows God. 
Number one, chapter one, verses six and seven, unity with other believers. Again, this is not perfection. This is, am I growing in my unity, my fellowship with other believers? Chapter one, verses eight through nine, confession of sin. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, obedience to God. Chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, love for God and not a love for the world. 5, chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, a lifestyle of doing what is right. Again, not perfection, but a lifestyle of doing what is right. Number six, chapter three, verses two through three, in anticipation of Jesus' return. Do you have an anticipation of Jesus coming? Chapter three, verses five through six, progressive victory over sin. Number eight, chapter three, verses 14 to 15, a love for believers. Number nine, chapter three, verse 18 to 19, loving people, not just in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then 10th, chapter five, verses four through five, victory over the world, which is what God has given us because of our faith. So you can look those up. I would encourage you, you know, or to examine ourselves. That gives a perfect exam, if you will, to see how we're doing. Are we growing in those things? If I went too fast, come see me afterwards or listen online. Paul goes on, he prays, verse 7. What's he pray? Check it out with me. So he says this to the church, and he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. So Paul prays for them. Look at verse 7. What does he pray for them? Number one, that the Corinthians would do no wickedness that they'd avoid what was harmful to them and that, that which would harm others also. And Paul says, it's interesting what he says there. He's, he says, or he communicates, I'm not saying this so that I'd look good or that I'd appear approved. It's not about my appearance. I want you to quit messing up. Not so I won't be embarrassed by what you're doing. I'm concerned for you. This is self-destructive. This is destructive to others. I want you to do what is right, what is honorable, even if I seem to be despised or if I seem to be a failure. And I think, you know what, what a great example for us. This should be our example with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends. He's saying, I want what is best for you. 
that you would be blessed, that you would experience all that God has for you. I don't care what people think of me, because we can think a lot about what people think of us, can't we? Paul's like, I'm not trying to be approved by men or getting the, the accolades of men. I want you to live a life that's pleasing to God, a life that's honorable, a life that people can look up to, that you'd walk in holiness, you'd walk in your calling. Because you, because you represent the Lord, you're not representing me. You're representing Jesus. We're not doing this for appearance sake. In fact, we're doing this, why? Look at verse eight, because of the truth. We're doing this because of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His word is truth. We're doing this because we are on the side of truth, for the truth, and we rejoice. We rejoice in verse 9. We're glad when we're continually without strength and despised. Why? Because you are empowered. You're strengthened. I love this about Paul. This is such a great, such a great example for us. Again, this is Jesus-style ministry. Paul's heart is that others would be strengthened no matter what the cost to his life. Humbling himself, taking the place of a servant to see other people's lives blessed. That's what a servant does, right? Are we servants this morning? Listen, life is all about finding the right master. If your master is money or power or personality, making a name for yourself or prestige, that, those are cruel masters. Jesus is a gracious and kind master who gently leads us in love as a good shepherd. He's tender. He cherishes us. He nourishes us. He is the good shepherd. And he's called us, if we want to be great in his kingdom, to be servants of all. What does a servant do? What does a servant do, you guys? Do they look for the servant of the year award? They, listen, a servant lives to make other people's lives better. A servant lives to make other people's lives better. D- does anybody here want to be blessed? D- did anybody come to church saying, I don't want to be blessed? No way, buckaroo. I didn't come here to get blessed. You want to be blessed, right? Jesus told us how to be blessed. John chapter 13, he gave us the example to lay aside our pride, our reputation, to lay aside whatever and wash people's feet. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? He said, you want to be blessed? Do this. Become, the, do the lowest menial stuff. And for some of, some of us are saying, well, what in the world does that mean? You can bathe someone with kind words. Come alongside people to make their, how can I make your life better to serve you? I mean, it should be happening in our homes, shouldn't it? In our marriages, with our kids. We serve. We model servanthood for them. Paul's like, listen, I'm fine if I'm weak and you're strong. I want you to do well. And my prayer is also that you would be made complete. 
It's interesting that word complete means in good working order because fully and properly adjusted. You guys ever get your cars worked on? Anybody got a good mechanic, by the way, that they can? <laughs> Our cars sometimes need to get adjusted, don't they? Tune-ups and stuff. Paul is saying here, my prayer is that you would be made complete, that things would work together, that you would work together. Listen, how we treat one another matters in the body of Christ. We're all different parts, aren't we? Are all the parts of your body necessary? They are, aren't they? You don't say to your big toe, listen, you stink, you're in the dark, get out of here. We don't tell our body parts that, do we? A big toe is necessary to walk. Every part, absolutely crucial and vital in order that we might be able to, to function. Same way in the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm praying that you'd be made complete, that, that adjustments would be made in order for you to function in a healthy way. And when things are out of whack in our relationships, our broken relationships, they, they can't get fixed until you choose to do what's right. Do you know that this morning? Or I choose to do what's right. And how, well, how do I find out what the right thing to do is? We get into the Word of God. Are you with me? The Word of God tells us, hey, this will help you, this will hurt you. This is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. We're all jacked up, aren't we? Are we all jacked up? Not as, much, not as jacked up as we once were. Correct? But this is what God is aiming at, that we would be made complete. And we must recognize and identify those areas that are out of place, broken, and put them in order, making the necessary adjustments in our lives. And we are to love and to serve one another in the midst of our imperfection, in the midst of our jacked upness. Is that a word? I don't know. (laughs) We're to love and serve one another in the midst of that. And again, Paul has God's heart. Can I just encourage, if you're a leader, which most of us are, in some way, shape, or form, look at Paul's heart here. If you being made complete, if you being blessed, if you being strengthened means that I must be weak or sacrifice or go through suffering, it's okay with me. That's, you know what, that's so crucial. Such an important point. We're willing to go down so you'd go up. We're we're willing to take the low road so you'll take the high road, so that you'll be blessed. In fact, he says in verse 10, look what he says in verse 10 as we close out here. In light of all that, I'm writing this. I'm gone. I'm going to be with you. If I was with you, I would probably be, I would use sharpness. Sharp means intense, strong, or severe. Um, (laughs) I don't want to come off too strong. Please get things right before I come. I don't want to come down hard. Listen, there's times I've blown this. Some of you are like, I know, Pastor, you sure have. I can get passionate about things, get worked up, state things too strongly. I try to remember what Paul says here. So pray for me. And if I have used sharpness with you, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I know some of you are like, yeah, amen. Thanks. Finally, you're admitting... And Paul reminds us, he says, 
this authority I have is from the Lord. Where does authority come from? The authority you have as a husband, as parents, as those, as leaders. All authority comes from the Lord, you guys. And notice what it says, that authority he's given to us, husbands, parents, leaders, my precious brothers and sisters, when we've received authority, it's for what? What does it say? For edification, to build up, to strengthen others, to encourage others, not for demolition, not to destroy people, not to tear them down. Some people think that's the way to do it. That's the way the world does it. Not in Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom, he says, the authority I'm sharing with you is to build one another up, to strengthen one another. Whatever position you have, Paul never used his authority to abuse God's precious people. I love that about Paul. God gave me this authority for the purpose of edification. The reason I do what I do is to build you up, Paul says. Finally, brethren, finally you're done, pastor, good job. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and look at this promise, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Is that an awesome promise? Do you guys like that? Anybody like that promise? We just sang a little while ago, didn't we, about God's promises? The first thing he says there, final exhortations, encouragements, farewell. It means to rejoice. Are you rejoicing this morning? I'm looking at some faces. They're like this. What should I rejoice about? Election. What's going on with the election? Can't get my free Costco samples because of COVID. (laughs) I'm going to get a smile out of some of you here in a minute. We have so much to rejoice over. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, forgotten, gone forever. You're God's child. Your life is in his hands. He promises to take care of you. He bought you at a price. His word will have the final say in your life. There's some stuff to rejoice about. You have a full belly this morning and you took a bath. You got clothes on. Did you have clothes to pick through this morning? God's blessed you. He's put a roof over your head. He's given you people that love you. He's given you a church family. A place where you can be fed God's word and be loved and cared for. There's so much to rejoice over. And Paul says, as Paul wraps this up, he says, that word farewell means rejoice. It's charis, it's, in, it's grace. Rejoice. God's given you grace upon grace, upon grace, layer upon layer of grace. Does it give you mercy? That's something to be thankful for, to rejoice in. And then he says, look what else he says, become complete. Make those adjustments. You need to make an adjustment. Maybe it's an attitude adjustment this morning to move in the right direction. Jesus was full of joy. He was 
anointed with the uh, oil of joy more than his companions. Oh, yes, he was a man of sorrows, but he radiated joy. Paul's like, grow up. Word also means maturity. Be of good comfort. That's the same word we get, the Greek word for the Holy Spirit, who comes alongside as our comforter. Paul's saying, comfort one another. How can, we be of, how can you be of good comfort? To be someone that comforts others. The letter began with that, you guys. Y'all, all y'all. The letter began with this. Listen, we're to comfort one another with the same comfort that we've received from God. If you've received comfort, you guys received comfort from God. Anybody here this morning? You're not to be a comfort hoarder. You're to be a comfort giver. It's teamwork. Be of one mind. Like-mindedness. Agree together. Find out what you can unite on and move forward ministering to others. Having the mind of Christ. That's the mind we're to have. Live in peace. Live in peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. As much as depends upon you, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that in Romans. As much as depends upon you, not the other person, God will work it out on that end. You do your part. All right, I'm going to be a peacemaker. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who win the argument, win the fight. Want to be happy? It's a fruit of the Spirit. The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. And I love this, what we're reading here. We're supposed to live in love and in peace. If we are not experiencing love and peace, guess what? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We're doing it wrong. We're not doing life as God intends, as he designed it. Because the promise is the God of love and peace will be with you. We do these things that he just asked us to do. What are we going to experience? His presence, his love and peace in a special way. Isn't it great you get to come here and experience love and peace? Think about Corinth. When they came to Corinth, you know what, they, you know what you'd find? You have a hard, day, hard week at work. You know what you'd come in and find? Drama, fighting, no peace. Paul's saying, listen, you need to get these things in order, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of love will be with you in a special way. It's interesting he says that. Because if we don't do it his way, it'll seem like he's far away. But if we're drawing close to him and walking in these things together, listen, and, and what? He has a way of taking his love and peace and making them real to us. Listen, there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect, correct? I know some of you are saying, yeah, this is, this is perfect, man. <laughs> Just give it some time. We're a little... <laughs> The only perfect church is in heaven. But when we walk in these things, we get a little taste of heaven on earth. The God of love and peace with us. So special. Isn't that special to you guys? I love gathering with you. Because the Lord shows himself in such a special way with his peace and his love. And then Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Some of you are saying, yes, I, I knew I could do some kissing. 
Pucker up, baby. It's in the Bible. <laughs> this is a cultural thing. It's a, tra- it's a traditional greeting. Like, we go to Cuba. Some of you guys know we go to Cuba, and they do that. They do that thing, the kiss thing. They, they do two cheeks. And you're, I'm kind of like trying to figure out how to do this thing, you know. Just... You know, I was meditating on this this week. I'm like, why in the world does Paul say this? It's a call to be affectionate. It's a call to be affectionate. It's necessary. Why? Because in light of them being so mad at each other, so divided, Paul's saying, don't forget to show that affection to your brothers and sisters. Because what can happen in the church when you're mad at someone in the church? You walk in and what do you do? I didn't see you. I didn't see them. Didn't see them. Hope they didn't see me. I'm going to conveniently ignore them. I'm going to give them the Heisman. Stay away. He's saying, you know what he's saying? Don't walk in the other direction. Listen, if you are ever somewhere where they do this, make sure it's a holy kiss. Isn't that what it says? A holy kiss. All the saints greet you. All the believers say hello. And look at how he signs off. This is one of the clearest expressions of the Trinity in the entire New Testament. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. A triune blessing. Isn't that sweet? The kindness of Jesus, his favor, the Father's love, the fellowship, the communion, the connecting of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that total package is yours, Paul says to the church. Be completely blessed by the entire Trinity. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Men in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much. God, what an awesome book. Lord, thank you for.